When you think about how an organization is structured, especially within Christianity, there are a couple of models that might jump to your mind. Maybe you think of someone like the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church, with one leader acting as God's spokesperson. When the leader speaks, the people follow. Or maybe you think of a more congregationalist model, where a church congregation is left to their own device, like a megachurch. If you talk to a Seventh-day Adventist about how the church is structured, you might get an answer that sounds like either one of these. Some might not really pay any attention to what happens beyond the walls of their local church building. Others might point you to the administration at the General Conference. That's the world headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But the answer is actually a lot more complicated than that. We have to really make our structure understandable. You know, about nobody knows what the church, what are the different levels. This is Pastor Benita Shields, a former vice president for ministries at the North American Division. Pastor Benita has a knack for seeing things that other people miss. This probably comes from spending years as one of the only women in the room as both a pastor and a church administrator. Most people are so confused about the structure of the church, and there are parts of it too that we as leaders are confused. And if we're confused, how do we expect our church members to understand it? I'm Caleb Isley. And I'm Nina Volato. This is How the Church Works. A deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care. In this episode, we're going to be talking about structure, all the different layers that make up the Adventist Church, how decisions are made and policies are developed, how things work together, and sometimes how they don't. When we talk about the Seventh-day Adventist church structure, there's a lot of moving pieces beyond the local church. Seventh-day Adventists run all kinds of things through their organization, including some of the largest educational and hospital systems in the world. There's the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, or ADRA, which provides frontline aid to people in need across the globe. There are Adventist publications and publishing companies like Pacific Press, There's Adventist book centers and TV networks like Hope Channel. So when we talk about church structure, we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about how we do business, how policies are made, who's in charge, and how things like tithe money are used. As far as denominations go, the Seventh-day Adventist church tends to be pretty administrative, meaning lots of decisions are made by lots of different departments and people. The Adventism of today is very institutional. We need to understand that the World Seventh-day Adventist Church is really a rather complex organization. Lowell Cooper is a retired vice president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. He's the kind of guy you want to sit on the porch with and just talk about anything and everything. We have some 80 or 90,000 churches. We have institutions, schools, hospitals, clinics, publishing houses. Uh, Many different ecclesiastical units, local missions, local conferences, unions, divisions, etc. The General Conference kind of sits 
at the center or the top. I, I don't like using that language at all because it gives a hierarchical picture of the church, uh, which we, we are not. There's a reason why Lowell is emphasizing this, and we'll get to that in a minute. The General Conference is sort of the place where the church finds a collective identity. We are all part of one another. And the General Conference does operate a number of institutions. Loma Linda is a General Conference institution. Pacific Press uh, Publishing Association, Review and Herald Publishing Association. These were General Conference institutions until about uh, 2014. Oakwood University. Andrews University. The, uh, University in the Philippines. University in Africa. Adventist World Radio. Hope TV. Uh, General Conference Auditing Service. Adventist Development and Relief Agency. These are all organizations that serve the world field. And as such, they are hosted, supported, created by the General Conference uh, in order to serve the world field. Each of these organizations has a governing board and they have governing documents, constitutions and bylaws that detail how they, how they function and what is their purpose. But in order to kind of tie all of these things together into a coherent and a collaborative sense for the World Church, representation from General Conference administration is on the boards. But Adventism wasn't always this way, a big institutional system. In our last episode, we talked a little bit about why the early Adventists were so wary of organized religion. Here's Lowell again. There was a time in our history, by the way, in which uh, our early Adventists believed that we should not have structure of any kind, any kind. I mean, some of our early Adventists were rejected. They were expelled from the churches to which they belonged because of their belief in the second coming of Christ. And so for quite a period of time, there was uh, real resistance against having any structure. But gradually, our, our pioneers realized, you know, if we are going to somehow stick together, we have to have some structure to help us do that. What changed? As organizations grow, they become more complex. In order for Adventists to run their publishing houses, they needed to purchase property, equipment, and register their publications. In order for Adventists to receive conscientious objector status during the Civil War, they had to belong to an official religious organization. In the minds of the Adventists, in order to fulfill their mission to spread the gospel to the world and beckon the soon coming of Jesus, they had to get organized. So, here we are today. Many Adventists tend to think of the church as a pyramid, with the local church at the bottom and the general conference at the top. And yes, the local church is the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's where church membership is held. Members are allowed to vote on church business matters here and can also be elected to church leadership roles, which we'll talk about later. When someone wants to get baptized, the local church is where that happens. And when someone is disfellowshipped, which means they're removed from church membership. That happens at the local layer too. Next is the conference layer. This is made up of groups of churches in a particular territory, usually either a state or geographical region that makes sense. 
The conference is who employs the pastors and teachers for that conference. And this is also the layer that collects something called tithe, which is money used to maintain the church. There's a lot more to the story of our tithe system, and we'll get into that in a later episode. A group of conferences makes up a union. Not only do unions support the conferences in their territory, they also oversee Adventist colleges and universities and the operations of clinics, hospitals, media ministries, and other special entities. The last layer is the General Conference, which is the world headquarters of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The General Conference is split into 13 division seats that oversee mission in their territory. The divisions aren't technically their own layer. They're part of the General Conference. There is also the General Conference session, which meets every five years to do things like elect officers for the GC and division offices vote changes to the official church manual, and approve changes or additions to the fundamental beliefs. The GC session is the highest authority in the church. All the policy that governs how the church runs, from how people are elected to how tithe is spent, is voted through this body. To really understand how this works, let's use us as an example. Nina, our producer Heather, and I all live in the Portland-Vancouver area in the Pacific Northwest. But we all go to different churches. Our churches belong to the same conference, though, the Oregon Conference, which oversees churches in Oregon and a few in southern Washington. The Oregon Conference belongs to the North Pacific Union, which also includes Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Alaska. The NPUC, North Pacific Union, is part of the North American Division, which supports unions in the United States and Canada, as well as other territories like Guam and Bermuda. Now, you can start to see why people might visualize the Adventist church structure like a pyramid. But is that really an accurate representation? Are the people on top of the pyramid in charge of the people below? Or is it a reverse pyramid with the power resting at the local church? From our conversations, it seems like Seventh-day Adventism isn't really either. It really is more like an ecosystem. It's an interconnected community of organisms and systems that influence each other directly and indirectly. And if one part of that ecosystem fails or takes over, the system can have serious issues. Let's go back to Lowell Cooper again. There is no place, there is no place in Seventh-day Adventist church structure that has final authority in everything. Not at the general conference, not at the local church, nowhere in between in our spectrum of organizational structure. We have distributed authority. And because of that, we are very interdependent. We're not hierarchical, nor are we congregational. Although people might find some elements of those two extremities uh, of church polity. There may be some elements, but basically we are very interdependent. The authority of the local church, for example, the final authority of the local church, is to admit members or to discipline members. It's only a local church that can decide whether or not I can be a member. Interlocking and interdependent is probably the best way to describe how the various layers of the church work together. 
And Lowell Cooper wasn't the only one who voiced this sentiment. Even most of the people who had a lot to say about the holes in the system never framed it as something where one level of leadership held all the power. Here's George Knight, a prolific author on Adventist church governance and a former professor at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary on the campus of Andrews University. We do not have a presidential system. We have administrators that act as if we have a presidential system. If you're paying attention, this is the second time in this episode a guest has clearly said that Adventism is not a presidential system. And if you've been paying attention to this whole series so far, you can probably guess that there's a specific context around this emphasis that Adventism is not, and should not be, a presidential hierarchical system. The reason why people keep saying that Adventism is not presidential is because there have been times in our history when it's tried to be. In the mid-1870s, there was a push for one-man leadership, spearheaded by George Butler, then General Conference President. Butler believed that some men were, quote, placed higher in authority in the church than others, end quote, clearly meaning James White. And at first, the church accepted this. And so did Ellen White. But by 1877, the church had softened its emphasis on kingly power to a more oligarchical form of leadership, a few powerful men making all the decisions. By 1891, Ellen White wrote this, quote, There was not the voice of God in the General Conference management and decisions. And though one of the GC leaders made it appear that the decisions being made were the voice of God, she says this, Many of the positions taken, going forth as the voice of the general conference, have been but the voice of one, two, or three men who are misleading the conference. As the turn of the 20th century was nearing, Adventist mission work around the world grew, and fairly soon there were Adventist territories in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Yet, decisions at the General Conference were being made for the territories with no representation of people from those fields. By 1901, the situation had become so dire that Ellen White, speaking to church administrators the day before the 1901 General Conference session, said, God wants change right here and right now. And at the 1901 GC session, change happened. The church's leadership structure was decentralized. Instead of every church decision, no matter the field, being run through a general conference executive committee, more power was given to the local conferences, and unions were formed to create a buffer between the two layers. The church also moved to making major decisions along a consensus vote, meaning that the aim is for all to agree. The general conference session as we know it today, with representation from all fields of the church, was also established then. The church also experimented with doing away with the GC president altogether. The church shifted to a more committee leadership model and even changed the name of the GC president to chairman, although some argued that was merely a cosmetic fix. In 1903, though, some of this decentralization was backtracked. GC chairman E.G. Daniels reinstated the title of president, 
And instead of using consensus voting, the GC switched to majority vote. That means that instead of needing 90% or more of people, for example, to agree to a policy, now all that was needed was 51%. Some historians see this backtracking as a, a false step for the church, while others see it as simply a necessity for doing church in the real world instead of an ideal world. Much of the organizational structure implemented in 1901 and in 1903 is what we still use today, an emphasis on decentralized leadership and representative decision-making was born out of the struggle against authoritarian leadership in the church. So if Adventism is not presidential, but today we have presidents everywhere, conference presidents, union presidents, division, and general conference presidents, how does that work? Let's go back to George Knight. In Adventism, you have three administrators. And theoretically, they're co-equal. President, secretary, treasurer. It's not a presidential system, but more and more, we act as if it is. And uh, therefore, whether it's the local conference, union conference, general conference, we have a temptation uh, to make it into a presidential system and the president uh, sets the agenda. And now I agree that somewhere there's gonna be some leadership, but it needs to be collegial leadership with a focus on, I'm only a presidential servant. And I need advice from people who disagree with me. So with something this huge and, let's be real, cumbersome, how are decisions actually made? If there isn't one person calling all the shots, how do we get anything done? There's a few ways, and these are really the foundation of how we do church. They're present in every layer, the local church, the conference, the union, and the general conference. And they're called committees and constituency sessions. You're probably already familiar with the concept of a committee. Committees are usually formed to address a very particular issue. What color to paint the church? How to prepare and market for a local mission project? how to address the widespread hemorrhaging of people under 40 from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Committees usually discuss and come to recommendations for these types of issues. This is at every layer of the church, and different layers have different issues. A very common committee at the local church level is a nominating committee, which is the group that recommends people to local church leadership positions. There are nominating committees for the leadership and administrative positions in all the other layers of the church, too. And at the local church, the people who are elected by the nominating committee to certain positions, like Sabbath school director or head elder, are automatically members of the church board. The church board is where important decisions about the local church are made. While not every church member has a vote on the board, Church board meetings are generally open to all members to attend. Occasionally, there are matters that need to be decided by the whole church, and this usually happens either during the church service or at a church business meeting, which typically happens once a year. This includes approving transfers of membership, 
welcoming people into membership through profession of faith or baptism, approving the church budget, and church discipline. Church business sessions are open to all members, and everyone gets a vote. But especially for committees at the conference, union, division, and GC layers, who determines who sits on those? This is where the constituency sessions matter. The people who sit on committees are typically departmental or administrative leadership who were elected to their positions through a constituency meeting. These meetings are made up of delegates, both clergy and regular members, or laity, from all over the constituency territory. These are the meetings where the big decisions are made. Decisions that can affect the culture or missional focus of the church for a long time. Decisions like who will be the next president of your conference, union, or division. It's also where we decide on policy changes or changes to the rules and regulations of the constituency, called bylaws. Constituency meetings starts at the conference layer. Each church nominates one or more representatives, and that depends on the church membership numbers. And the people who go are usually someone who has already been involved in these types of roles at the local church layer. The best known example of a constituency meeting in the Adventist church is the general conference session, which we mentioned earlier. This is different than the general conference headquarters. The GC session happens every five years and includes thousands of delegates from every single division in union territory in the world. And the number of delegates is determined mostly by membership numbers of that territory. This is where the most far-reaching decisions of the church are voted on, including things like changes to the fundamental beliefs, working policy, who will be the next GC and division officers, and notoriously, if divisions should be allowed to ordain women to pastoral ministry, which was voted on in 2015 to a 41-58% to split on a no vote. But that's a whole other story. Between constituency sessions, which can be years apart depending on the bylaws of a particular territory, decisions are voted on by the executive committee, which is made up of the leadership elected by constituencies. This can all seem kind of complex and boring, but we're spending time on it because this is really important for us to understand. Committees and constituency meetings are where some of the most important decisions about the church are made. This is where policy is shaped, and decisions are made according to that policy. And though the term policy can feel rigid and devoid of the Holy Spirit, maybe it's exactly the opposite. You know, when we talk about policy, it sounds very rigid and strict. You know, I mean, it is not a very comfy word, but, you know, the purpose of policy for the church organization is to protect the church organization from autocratic and erratic leadership. Kiyoshin An is the executive secretary of the North American Division. He's an expert on policy and church dynamics, and he spent a lot of time helping us to understand the role and scope of policy in the church. Let me put it this way. A recommendation for new policy where the revision of the existing policy comes to us from every direction. It comes from local conference, also union or various denominational entities, also including 
North American Division departments. And those recommendations are reviewed by various committees, uh, such as Policy Review Committee, and the division and union officers, and, the, and it is finally ultimately approved by the North American Division Executive Committee at year-end meeting. The reason I'm saying that is that the policy is uh, dynamic. It is not fixed, although it is fixed in the in writings, but it is dynamic and can be amended. When we think about policy, oh, it is something that is written in on stone and so something cannot be changed. No, that's not the case. Uh, we are an organic unity and uh, this policy is dynamic and can be amended. This is why our representative form of group decision-making is actually pretty amazing. Working together is hard, but it creates a better outcome for all of us. Conflict, you know, <laughs> is an unavoidable when human beings get together, even for a common purpose that, you know, we as, an, as a religious organization may have. We come from different cultural backgrounds, emotional, with a different emotional set. We come from many different uh, geographical backgrounds. It is okay to have conflict. What is more important, what is important is how we process this conflict, how we approach this conflict, whether we approach this conflict with love and Christ-likeness does matter and will contribute to its outcome. Anytime that there's been pivotal changes in our church's history, they happened officially through these types of decision-making bodies. Just last year, a special session of the General Conference Executive Committee was held to elect someone to the newly vacated North American Division position, which was open due to Dan Jackson retiring. While making this podcast, we actually had the chance to interview Alex Bryant, the newly appointed president of the North American Division. And he said this, If you understand how things work at the local church level, it's almost identical at every other level of the church. For example, we use a nominating committee process to elect a local church elder, a local church deacon, a local church usher, a local church youth leader. We use the exact same nominating committee process to elect the general conference president and all the positions in between. Let's bring back Pastor Benita Shields, who we heard from at the beginning of the episode. Committees are good things. I mean, you know, sometimes too much of a good thing can, can be bad for you. Really, committees gives us, number one, an opportunity to connect, to find out, you know, the left hand, what the right hand is doing. It gives us an accountability system rather than me just saying, okay, I'm going to spend $1.5 million on this project. It allows us to come together to have that accountability and even to have the guidance. You know, okay, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And it also, it just gives us um, a camaraderie in the work, which is helpful because as, as every level of the church, they have different roles, they have different functions, but it helps us to come together to say, hey, we're all in this together. Committees and constituency sessions allow for a certain amount of accountability and democracy that a top-down system wouldn't. But there are potential problems as well. For example, if all of the committees and delegate positions are taken up by, say, people of a certain age group, 
does it make room for new ideas? If people are nominated to fill these positions because they agree with how the church is already working, how can we challenge the system when things aren't going well? With a growing gap between church leadership and younger generations like millennials and Gen Z, the church is facing a potential crisis. Here's Pastor Benita Shields. I forget the figures, it's somewhere between 65, 66% of pastors are eligible to retire. So we're looking at a, a big change, and I think that's gonna have that's gonna force us to look at how we do ministry, but also how our church is structured. There are other ways that the demographics of leadership and decision makers don't accurately reflect the church too. For decades, Black Adventist leadership was kept out of decision-making conversations, committees, and constituencies. And while we are doing much better in this area than 100 years ago, most Adventist administrators tend to be white men. Despite the demographic data of the North American division, showing that only about 40% of churches are historically white. While the NAD does have an intentional drive to have diverse administrative leadership teams, the truth of the matter is that white men are far more likely to have access to the mentorship and support that feeds the leadership pipeline. There's a complex history that contributes to this, and we'll hear more about that in episodes five and six. Even for this podcast, most of the people we talked to were men, and most of them were white. Further, women in ministry often face unique challenges, not because it has something to do with their gender, but because the church and each of its congregations have varying degrees of animosity or support for women who are called to pastoral and other forms of leadership. Now, we need to be really clear here. Although there are some groups of Adventists that believe women are not biblically allowed to be pastors, Officially, the General Conference supports women as deacons, elders, pastors, and administrators. The General Conference policy, however, does not allow for women to be ordained as their male counterparts. Instead, they're commissioned, which is basically the same as ordination, with a few major exceptions. And all pastors are paid on the same pay scale, regardless of conference, position, race, or gender. But because certain leadership positions can only be held by ordained ministers, mainly conference, union, division, and general conference presidential positions, female pastors often face constant scrutiny over their calling to ministry. But there are some things we do really well. The Adventist Church isn't the only denomination to use a representative form of governing. In some other denominations, Delegates are responsible for their own expenses, or that burden falls to the individual churches or conferences the delegates are from. But in the Adventist church, the general conference funds the general conference session and the travel costs for the delegates. Some people might feel like paying for delegates to travel internationally is a waste of church resources, but making sure delegates don't personally foot the bill ensures that we have delegates from every Adventist territory and differing socioeconomic backgrounds attending and making decisions for the worldwide church. This is one of the beauties of having a church that sees the benefit of sharing the financial responsibility of worldwide mission. 
But that doesn't mean that there's never a problem with imbalance of power when it comes to money, even though the church tries to avoid it. Ideally, people who have a lot of money don't have more say in the matters of the church. Ideally. There's a piece of the puzzle we've been dancing around in this episode quite a bit. When we talk about leadership and structure, what we're really talking about is power. Who makes decisions? Who decides how the church works? How do they affect everyone else? But in a religion founded in the United States, you can't talk about power without talking about money, the tithe dollar. Given by people at the local church level, tithe is the thing that pays administrative salaries, funds ministries, and employs people like teachers and pastors. It's the power that rests in the average person, the local church member. But that's a whole other conversation we'll have in another episode. Our ideals and beliefs about how structured or unstructured church should be has changed a lot over time. But that isn't the only belief that's changed. Next time on How the Church Works, the story of the 28 fundamental beliefs and what they mean for us today. How the Church Works is hosted by Nina Velato and Kayla Beisley. Thank you to our guests this week, Benita Shields, Lowell Cooper, George Knight, Kyoshin Ahn, and Alexander Bryant. You can find bonus content and show notes for this episode on howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written by Caleb Isley with help from Heather Moore, and it was produced by me, Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by the multi-talented Nina Velato. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby, website and social media by Chelsea Ernina. Thank you to our tech and equipment expert, Stephen Husett. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Caleb Isley, and Nina Velado. Special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Have something to say? Email us at hello at howthechurchworks.com.